Hi, I'm Leah Lane, an award-winning travel writer and author of Places I Remember, Tales, Truths, Delights from 100 Countries. On this podcast, we share conversations with travelers about fascinating destinations and memorable experiences around the world. Today, we're talking all about our southernmost continent, Antarctica, which is virtually uninhabited, and 98% of the landmass is covered in ice. Scenic Cruise's newish ocean ship, Scenic Eclipse, sailed its first season in Antarctica in 2019-2020. Their expedition team leader, Jason Flesher, will tell us what it's like to experience Antarctica aboard a Discovery yacht and other ways as well, and what it's like to lead groups of travelers on excursions there. Welcome, Jason. Oh, thank you so much for having me today. Let me first ask you, what made you become an expedition leader in, in Antarctica? Tell me a little bit about your background. Oh, I've been in the outdoor industry now for about 38 years, and um, both domestically in the United States as well as internationally. And I've also been involved in wilderness and international search and rescue for about 30, 35 years or so. And uh, about 11 years ago, I had got invited to go down to Antarctica, um, there was some guides from Australia that had canceled at the last minute on a um, company. And so somehow my name got thrown out there and they contacted me and asked if I'd be interested because part of my specialty is also in high altitude mountaineering and cold climates. And I said, sure, when, when? And they said, can you leave in four days? It's like, um, wow. Okay. <laughs> and so <laughs> after that, that was, that was it. I was hooked. And to be honest with you, ever since I've been going back every year, every season and found a way and that um, it, it's so addictive and, and it's so magical to see it through the eyes of other people and the guests that we bring down there. And that's why I keep going back. Well, that's, that's wonderful. Would you tell us what's a typical expedition on a ship? I mean, there are different levels. There's budget to luxury. Can you give us some idea of that? Sure. Um, well, first, you, you're going down to Antarctica on an expedition ship. And the reason why you want to go on an expedition ship and not a cruise ship, expedition ships are limited to no more than 200 um, guests or passengers at a time. And the reason why is Antarctica is managed by IATO, which is the International Antarctic Association. And they limit shore landings to no more than a hundred people at a time. And that's to protect the wildlife. And so an expedition ship that has 200 people, you do a rotation, hundred people on shore while there's a hundred people on a Zodiac doing Zodiac cruises, and then you rotate. So everyone gets the equal amount of time on shore as well as on the water. So whereas a cruise ship where you have over 200 guests, three, four, 500 guests, you never go to shore. You only see Antarctica from the ship itself. So one, that's a big difference. And the typical expedition down there is, like I mentioned, you'll have at least two or three excursions a day. Um, you'll get to shore at least once a day, sometimes twice a day to different locations. So after your morning excursion, you'll get back to the ship, you'll have lunch, you'll sail to another place. And then you'll have that rotation again of shore and on the Zodiacs. And sometimes you may just do Zodiac cruises where to go whale watching or 
to the iceberg graveyards and see beautiful sculptures you know of the ice from the wind and water itself so you have those options and opportunities to really explore and see antarctica and then some of your expedition ships will also have kayaking and paddle boarding other ways to explore you know antarctica from the silence you know on the water itself and then to your ultra luxury such as on board scenic eclipse where we have two helicopters so you can explore from above. And I, I can't tell you getting that perspective, that bird's eye perspective of Antarctica, because it is the highest, most mountainous continent in the world. So seeing it from above, or we also have a submarine and see it from oh below, my. you know, and see what's down there. What which, is down there? <laughs> the, the magical sea creatures of the Southern Ocean, you know, and it's amazing that the, the rock, the, ice fish to the crustaceans that are down there and just really beautiful, unique, magical jellyfish that you'd see. Are they colorful? Like they would be in this really? Yeah. Very colorful. Um, the jellyfish and then some of the crustaceans down below the fish, not so much. Um, but yeah, some of the creatures down there are, are just stunning, you know, to see. And when I did my dive itself was down around elephant Island which was pretty special too. So that's, you know, a little bit of um, expedition down to Antarctica, some of the options, and also some of the companies where you can camp. You'll spend the night out on the ice itself. So you have that opportunity uh, to camp. And one thing to just put out there is depending on your budget to go to Antarctica uh, would really determine what type of ship you would want to go on. Some ships, if you're on a shoestring budget that you want to get down there, that's great. But you would then have to pay for those add-ons of kayaking, paddleboarding, camping, uh, on the ship amenities you would pay extra for, where as you kind of go up the ladder, so to speak, into the ultra luxury side of things or the luxury side, more of those options are inclusive. So it's part of your package where you don't pay extra for. So it just depends on your budget and your goals of what you want to see in Antarctica. Right. It sounds wonderful either way. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about some of the adventures in a little while. I did collect a bunch of facts about Antarctica because it's a little bit unknown to most of us, including me. I did go once and I went on a ship. I did not get to do these wonderful things you're talking about. I would love to go back and do them someday. But let's let's just talk about some of the facts. And you can jump in anytime you want if you want to add something. The size of Antarctica, it's 5,483 million square miles. It's the fifth largest continent, nearly twice the size of, size of Australia. But only about 1,000 people live there in winter and maybe 5,000 in the summer, according to what I read at research stations. It's It's quite amazing. It's the coldest, the driest, the windiest continent of of any. I think the lowest natural air temperature ever recorded was minus 128.6 Fahrenheit. Did you come close to that, Jason? I Yeah, um, I've heard down to 157. Oh, my goodness. Fahrenheit. And I was also down in Antarctica several years ago where we broke a a temperature record where it got it's close to about 72, 73 degrees. 
Oh my goodness. And, and bathing of, suits. I, I trust me, we're in t-shirts. Oh uh, no. I, was, I I don't like it in a way. I know what that means you know, in a way. Right. Be, well, it shouldn't be, but you know, when I was living near Lake Tahoe at the time, it was much colder in the Sierra Mountains. Then when I was down in Antarctica, where it was, you know, in the low 70s, high 60s. Right. Well, you were there in the summer, which is, their of summer. course, their summer, which is our winter. I remember when I went, I think it was uh, November. It was colder in New York than it was in Antarctica. When I when I got off the plane, I thought, oh, my, it's cold. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, are active, <laughs> there are active volcanoes there. Have you been to some of those? Uh, yeah. You know, it's very active down there and um deception islands which is pretty amazing because it's a volcanic island and the caldera collapsed uh a long time ago so ships can actually sail yes i did that i did that on the ship i remember seeing the remains of the eruption i think it was from 1970 and it's still full of you know because it's so cold i guess it keeps it maintains the the same uh, look that it had originally, but it was it was very interesting to see the difference between that terrain and the rest of the ice. Uh, there are also rivers and lakes. Have you been on the Onyx, which is the longest river in no. Antarctica? It's probably hard to get to. Yeah, no, I haven't. <laughs> Maybe next time. Maybe next time. Let's but let's I've go. Been I've been, been to, to no, some rivers. Not the rivers, but some of the mountains down there. Yeah. Let's go way back for a second. More than 100 million years ago, Antarctica was part of the supercontinent called Gondwana. And it was not always cold or dry or covered in ice. It was farther north. And from what I read, it was tropical or temperate climate for a while. And it was even covered in forests. Do you know about that? Yeah, they found many dinosaur fossils. They found um, tree fossils down there. If you go down into the Weddell Sea, side it's very fossil rich uh in that area and um and that's where they've made many discoveries and that's where actually when they had discovered these fossils realizing at that time the connection to south america and that it was a tropical area uh before the continent split apart yeah that's amazing uh gondwana gradually broke apart and uh that was about 25 million years ago, and the Drake Passage opened up between it and South America. That's where the Atlantic and the Pacific come together, and it's considered the most difficult waters in all the oceans. People yeah. who make the passage are called horners, <laughs> and I proudly have a certificate. What's yeah. What was your rough passage there? Did you have some, some bad ones? Um, I've had some good, you know, Drake shakes and some good Drake lakes. Um, oh, is that what it's called? <laughs> yeah. um, I've been in where we've had over five meter swells oh. uh, crossing the Drake. So it was quite entertaining. And um, and especially on some of the ships, because I've been on many different ships uh, at the time. And many of your older expedition ships are were not originally expedition ships. Some were car ferries. Some were oh. Russian tank ferries converted so the stabilization is not quite there um versus like eclipse was made for the drake so it's super stable but uh it's yeah it's definitely entertaining uh crossing <laughs> the drake. but many guests you know there is a great fear of the drake and so they've created these what they call our fly-in cruises now we're actually from punta Adrenas in uh, chile you can fly 
to King George Island in the South Shetland Islands and then pick up the ship there and avoid the drink. But to be honest with you, the, the fear, it, it, it shouldn't be a fear. You know, sometimes it's rough, but ships with today's technology and weather, there's times where we'll leave Antarctica a day early or uh, stay a day later to let a storm pass through because they pass through very quickly through the Drake Passage. And it's really not that bad. You're only talking about a day and a half to two days if you have a Drake shake, so to speak. And the best remedies is you lay in bed, you, you know, stay flat. That's the best thing to do. And um, you'll get through it. It's okay. The ship's not going to sink. The ship's not going to tip over anything. It'll be a little rolly, but you'll get through it. And I think many, many people, uh, you know, don't want to do this trip because of the fear. And right. I know I was kind of afraid of it, but on my ship, which was a little bit bigger, uh, they showed movies of really terrible passages to sort of get the people excited, I guess. I don't know. I didn't like it's it. It's part of the expedition. It's part it's of part the part of the expedition. When I had a wristband and I had Dramamine and I got into bed and all of that, and it was smooth as glass. Yeah. And I went up to the observation deck and I looked at Cape Horn coming toward me. It was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen, but it was like a lake. So yes. it, it depends. Yeah, it, it really does depend. It's hit or miss. Hit or miss. Here's something maybe you don't know, or maybe you do. Antarctica was originally called Australia. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh? There was a woodcut illustration in 1545 that showed that. And then in the early 19th century, the country of Australia took their name from the South Polar continent, leaving it nameless for 80 years. So geographers were searching for various names, and one of them was called Ultima, another was Antibodia. It sounds like a drug. I'm glad they didn't name it those things. Eventually, Antarctica was adopted as a continental name, but only in the 1890s. That's really interesting. They named it that? Yes. Isn't that interesting? They named it Antarctica just recently, relatively right, recently. But because it's it's not the Arctic, so it's the Antarctic. Right, right. Yeah. But we would have been calling it Ultima. Ultima. Yeah. <laughs> right, like a cigarette, Ultima. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> tell us some about, about the sea life that you found in Antarctica. Well, you know, that's a great question because most of the wildlife are migratory to come down to Antarctica for their summer. And they're down there to feed on krill. There are only a very few species of wildlife that are actually year round inhabitants of Antarctica and only one penguin species. So if, you know, I think what you want to see in Antarctica depends on when you go to Antarctica. So in regards to the wildlife, if you want to see penguins, you know, and the babies, the penguins sitting on their eggs and the, and the babies hatching, or you may want to see emperor penguins. Then you want to go early in the season, November or very early December to mid-December is when you're going to see the penguins courting, sitting on their nests, the eggs, the eggs hatching, because the, the babies will grow very, very quickly. If you want to see whales, if whales are, you know, your choice of wildlife you want to see, then as they're coming down, to feed on the krill, then usually around Christmas time to early February is the best time for your whale spotting because that's when they're all down there. They're all feeding. They're younger down there. The orcas are down there hunting, you know, as well. So everyone, all the wildlife's down there 
Christmas to early February. Then come early February, mid-February, the whales are start congregating to then head back north. So the later in the season, uh, mid-February to early March, March, you're not going to, you'll still see some whales, but you're not going to see much. Same with the penguins. At that point, the young have gotten their waterproof feathers and they're already starting their migration as well. So you won't see as much in that time period. You'll see some, but the weather is also less stable come mid-February on as well. So it's hit or miss with the weather and what you'll see that time frame. So between the seals, seals will be there November, especially if you want to see seal pups and you want to see uh, the first seal pups being born or you want to see the elephant seals courting the beach masters the massive you know six ton uh, elephant seals then november december is the best time uh, because after they're done courting and impregnating then the beach masters will leave come early december but then you have the wieners which are so cute the baby elephant seals um, because then the mothers have left at that point and they've weaned the babies, but they call them weaners because they've weaned, but they don't know to go to sea yet to go hunting. So they're just on the beach floundering. What do I do? What do I do? And until they get hungry enough, that's when they'll leave for sea. So they're curious to the humans, you know, and, and one thing which is magnificent about Antarctica, if wildlife you want to see, then you need to go because it's the largest wildlife refuge in the world. So you can't hunt in Antarctica. So there's no fear of humans, it's curiosity. So you'll have the penguins, the seals come up to you, you know, just curious of you. The whales, when you're in a zodiac and the whales will come spy hop right next to your zodiac because they want to see what you are, because they don't know what you are. Or, and I can't tell you, so few people in the world can ever say they've been snotted on by a whale. <laughs> the whale will come up next to you. And when they blow, you know, it's not just water, they're blowing. And especially if a whale has a cold, you'll get snotted on. But I'll tell you right now that so few, less than 1% who've gone to Antarctica can actually say they've been snotted on by a whale. And that's how many times, <laughs> how many times has, have you been snotted on? Five times. Oh my goodness. Me, I, I mean, you'll never forget those experiences. I'll bet. You'll be blown away. It's, it's blown away, literally. literally. Yeah, literally. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's magical the way you're describing it. Yeah. I, I just, I, I can't get over it. I think I, the one time I was there, I did feel that I was in another realm. I was not in a human realm. I was a guest and it was a very special pe- feeling. People ask me what's so special. One of the things is how you feel. You feel like you're a guest. You're not, you're not the the, per- the person in charge here. Right. You're visiting no. and you no. feel it. Let me ask you about the, most famous site, the South Pole. Have you made it there? I have not. Are you, are you planning to or hoping to? You know, I had an opportunity a few years ago to go on an expedition. It was going to be an expedition on totally on renewable energy to get there and skiing across the continent itself. And unfortunately, at the last minute, things have fallen through with the expedition. So I haven't had an, another opportunity. So if it comes up, absolutely. How long would it take? Uh, you know, what sort of preparation? It was going to be, well, the preparation, my training, I was training for a year and a half for it, pulling tire, literally pulling, you know, a truck tire connected to a backpack 
you know, because the single SUV truck tire would equate to about 150 pounds of resistance, which would have been the weight of pulling the sled. And so there was a year and a half of that. And then, of course, getting the sponsors and the equipment and blah, 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 everything. Um, and then the total expedition would have taken about 60 days. Wow. Well, Antarctica was the last region on Earth to be discovered. We can talk a little bit about some of the explorers. There was mm-hmm. Captain Cook who came by in 1773 and 1774. He didn't get on the land. He just came close to it and saw that it was there. And then in 1820, a Russian came by and he noticed it as well. First time that land was found, it was in 1840, a United States exploring expedition and a French ex- French expedition got on land for a little while. But the first confirmed landing was a, by a team of Norwegians in 1895. The ones we know about most are the Shackleton expedition and then the race to get to the pole by Amundsen and Scott. Do you know a little bit about Shackleton? Can you tell us about what happened there? Sure. I, I mean, as you said, it. I mean, it's one of the most famous stories. And, you know, and the stories of leadership. Um, and so with the Shackleton, Shackleton tried a few times to get to Antarctica. And on one of his, his last journeys is when Endurance, the ship itself, got stuck in the Weddell Sea by the ice pack. And it was one of the worst ice packs in history at that time. So they were going to have to, they never made it to the land. They were going to have to winter over in the ice pack. And then eventually to make a very, very long story short, the ice pack did crush their ship where it did sink. And so they were able to, of course, uh, get everything they needed off the ship, get their dories, life boats off the ship. And they started pulling it across the, uh, the ice pack itself. Now keep in mind, the ice pack is just frozen seawater. And because in the Waddell Sea, it's a big current. So the ice pack spins. So as they kept pulling their dories and their equipment across the ice pack, thinking, you know, to get to the continent or get to an island, at the same time while they're moving, so is the ice pack spinning. So there was times where, not that they were going in circles, but they weren't making much headway. Eventually, they found the open water. They got, you know, on their three dories and headed towards Elephant Island. Once they under, you know, with their sextant and navigation and everything, where they finally got to land and decided we can't go any further. And at that point, you know, Shackleton and some of his senior officers said, we got to make it for South Georgia. Because South Georgia at that time was the only place where the whaling stations were, where they knew people were, and it's where they left from. So the few of them converted one of the dories, beefed it up. And one of the most amazing stories, the rest of the crew was left behind, that they made, I think it was close to 800-mile journey to South Georgia, where the navigator only had no more than three, two to three times where they spotted the sun the entire time to get a navigational, you know, with the sextant and got them to South Georgia. And think of it as finding the pinpoint of a needle in the haystack to get to South Georgia. And they did it. And then it took him months later to actually get a ship back to rescue his crew, which 
not one perished. They were able to rescue the entire crew. They survived because of his leadership, because of the things that he did to inspire the team, to inspire it. And there's so many books, so many stories, even the lessons of Shackleton, which to this day is still part of any leadership training. And he's buried in South Georgia in Gretviken, where to this day, any expedition ship that goes to South Georgia, you go to the gravesite of him and, and his captain there, and, and you have a toast of his favorite scotch, you know, and you pour a little on the grave and, and you learn about his story and, and have a little shot of his scotch at the gravesite. It's a remarkable story of perseverance and survival. And his boat was named the Endurance. Let me just ask you about the the race to the South Pole. We know about that between the Norwegian Amundsen and the British Scott. And can you just tell us briefly how that turned out? Yeah, well, Amundsen was going from the Waddell Seaside, and that was originally the way Shackleton was trying to go to. And then Scott and Shackleton decided to go from the, at that time, the Rossi side. And so what was amazing was they left, all three parties left roughly around the same time. And Shackleton and Scott, who left from the Ross Sea side, pretty parallel to each other, but Scott had a jump ahead. Scott did reach the pole first. He was the first to reach the pole and Shackleton didn't make it at that time. And so what ended up happening was Shackleton ended up having to turn around at the time. Amundsen found Scott's flag. And then Scott on the return, getting back, he was only days, days away from reaching back to the Ross Sea when he reached his hut and there was only a few of them left alive. And unfortunately, some come to the elements. They got caught in a storm and couldn't finish the journey and died, you know, on the way back. Yeah, and like I said, only days away from reaching the edge. I think it's very hard to do it. Even today, I was reading that there aren't that many crossings across the whole continent, even with kites. How would you do it with kites? I was reading that that's one way to do it. You know, it's it's not just kites. People have mountain biked it now. Um, it's a solo journeys now. Basically, it's like kiteboarding on the water, but okay. kite skiing. So it's the same parafoil type kite that's used for kiteboarding in the ocean that's used for pulling across on skis. How common is it to get to the South Pole now? How many people do it? I hate to say it's becoming more and more common. Like Mount um, Everest, right? It's one yeah, of the things to do. Not quite, but it's very similar. And so the first female recently has done it. There's mountain bikers now with the big fat tires have done it. There's solo journeyers. There's people who have done the full uh, crossing of the continent, starting from the Waddell Sea to the Pole to the Ross Sea. I don't want to say it's become gimmicky, but people are trying to find ways to do it that's never been done before. But the, the the thing to understand is even though they say it's unsupported, it's still supported in a way because now there's GPS coordinates, checkpoints along the way. There's caches of food caches stashed for you because planes will come in. Plus you always have a rescue if needed. So the true sense of unsupported is not necessarily in the raw expedition side of it, you're not alone. You have radio communication, you have GPS, 
you have an emergency evac. So, but people are still trying to find ways that haven't been done before to say they're the first to do it that way. Exactly. Let me ask you about climate change. Do you have any comment about, you know, we, we read about the ice shelves and the warming temperatures up to 65 degrees. You said 70 something one day when yeah. you were there. And what do you feel is going on right now? It's horrible because, you know, of my 11 years going down there, I, I see the shift. You're seeing more and more rock exposed now. You're seeing more and more greenery, more lichen, more grasses, more algaes growing. They're having algae blooms now, not only in the water, but also on land. The snow algae that you see, you're also the wildlife. You're seeing more and more of the penguins, you know, having to go further south. Their normal rookeries being encroached upon by other species of penguins now. The Adeli, so to speak, are getting pushed out, who are your one year-round inhabitants is now getting pushed. So the wildlife itself is being affected adversely. Plus, it's raining more in Antarctica rather than snowing in Antarctica. The winds, the warm winds that come from South America now, and this is what's creating the melt of the ice shells and the ice, is you're getting the warm winds over Western Antarctica, the peninsula. So it's melting on the top, but the seawater is also rising. It's the fastest rising seawater temperature. So the shells are being melted from the ocean as well. And that's why you're getting those massive sea ice breaks, the ice shelf breaks now, uh, because it's being melted from the top and bottom. Any suggestions? I mean, we just did an episode on green travel, and I suppose it's the same suggestions as usual to cut down on carbon and well that's it there's one of the companies i worked for many years is called 2041 expedition founded by robert swan and rob was the first person to travel to both poles by on foot uh the arctic and, and antarctica and this was back in the 80s and so his mission jacques Cousteau, bestowed upon him actually was to protect antarctica and build awareness of antarctica and the climate change so the people, we, we would charter a ship and the people we would take from all over the world, you, you have to show firsthand effects of climate change to help understand because Antarctica is the barometer of the world. So it's a, it's, it's a yo-yo effect. So what's happening down there radiates back to the rest of the world. So what we're creating by the pollution and the carbon, and everything in the rest of the world then is affecting because, you know, the ozone the lack of the no the ozone hole in Antarctica is yo-yoing down to Antarctica. And then because the ice melt, the freshwater going into Antarctica, the wildlife being affected is reverberating back to the rest of the world of what we're creating. So by showing people that firsthand effect of what's happening in Antarctica, then they're understanding this is what I'm doing, even in North America, that's affecting, you know, Antarctica itself. And so now they go back and we had people on board to help them write proposals to lower their carbon footprint of their part of the world. So we've had CEOs and managers of Coca-Cola. We actually had the airport managers of Abu Dhabi when they were building the world's largest airport. And now after going down there, they went back to their architects at that time. And now their conveyor belts, the luggage belts are all run on solar where that wasn't the original plan and universities are going solar buses and 
you know, electric buses, things like that. So that's the things that are happening now, but you have to see it firsthand to understand what you're creating to now go back and make the change. Right. Well, the name of the podcast is Places I Remember. And Antarctica is certainly a trip that no one forgets. But tell us one of your most memorable experiences of your many memorable experiences. <laughs> I, I think one that I'll never forget. I, I was on a Zodiac and we're doing a Zodiac cruise to look at the wildlife, the whales and so on. And it just so happened that there was a pod of orcas, pod of orcas swimming around. And all of a sudden we realized there was a pod and there was several young with the, the pod of orcas. And the first thing we saw was there were some penguins on ice. And all of a sudden we see three male orcas swim side by side each other towards that little ice. It, it, was, it was flat ice that the penguins were on. And just as they were about to get to the ice, they dove beneath it. And by diving beneath it, they created a wave that flipped the ice over, that put the penguins into the water. And then the chase was on. And just watching them chasing the penguins, corralling the penguins to then the young came in. So what they were doing was teaching their young how to hunt. And then after that was over, then all of a sudden there was a seal there was a crab eater seal in the water. And next thing we started noticing, and at this point, our engines were off, you know, the whole time, okay, watching this right in front of us happening. And then all of a sudden we noticed they started playing with the seal and getting the seal feeling comfortable and almost like befriending the seal. And then as they were playing with it and swimming alongside and everything, and as a seal was feeling more comfortable, we noticed they started getting rougher with the seal and started pushing the seal a little bit. And then they started flipping it out of the water and getting a little more aggressive with the seal. And then to the point where they would stun it. And then all of a sudden the young would come in and we realized, oh my gosh, they were literally what was happening in front of us. They were teaching their young how to hunt. And this all lasted about with the penguins and the seals about an hour and a half. And you have to understand, yes, we watch them hunt the seal and, and everything and the penguins, but this is nature unfolding in front of you. The baby orca had the, the seal in its mouth right underneath our Zodiac. And, and the penguin at one time jumped onto our Zodiac before it went back in the water. It's just nature unfolding in front of you and nowhere else in the world can you feel as safe, but experience such experiences as that. I'll never forget that feeling. I'll never forget that experience. I'll never forget everyone in the Zodiacs, their jaws just dropped. And it was so hard to pick up your camera to get photos. I got photos of it because it's happening in front of you. So the one thing I'll leave you with, I'll guarantee you, if you go to Antarctica, the rest of your life, anytime you look at a globe or a map, the first place your eyes will always go to is straight down to Antarctica, and you're going to wonder, how am I going to get back there again? How beautiful. Thank you so much, Jason Flesher, expedition team leader on the scenic eclipse, for sharing this beautiful dream with us, a dream that can be achieved with yeah. guidance from people like you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure.
Thanks for listening to our award-winning podcast. We've recorded over 100 episodes of Places I Remember, so follow us on any podcast app. And new monthly episodes are also on YouTube with gorgeous video. My book, Places I Remember, is available in print and Kindle, and I read the audio version. Follow my travel writing at Forbes.com. Contact me at the links in the show notes or on my website, places I remember, and keep making your own travel memories. <laughs>